You're listening to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Amir Tibon. On today's episode, Israel is getting closer to having a new government with an old prime minister. Benjamin Netanyahu is back and is about to put together the most religious right-wing government in Israeli history. All of this at the same time that in the United States, the Biden administration emerged stronger from the midterm elections, which were successful for the Democratic Party. Today we'll discuss the U.S.-Israel relationship both at these challenging and interesting times and also in more historical days with Eric Alterman, historian and journalist and the author of a new book on the subject, We Are Not One, A History of America's Fight Over Israel. We'll ask him how Biden and Netanyahu will get along in this interesting new constellation, what lessons can be learned from the past, and what will the future of the relationship look like as Israel and the U.S. are moving in different directions. All of this up next. Hello, Eric. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So your new book, which comes out today as we are recording this podcast, um, is a long and fascinating history of the U.S.-Israel relationship and specifically the fight within the U.S. political system and the Jewish community over policy regarding Israel, titled We Are Not One, A History of America's Fight Over Israel. And I want to ask you, first of all, to explain um, those first four words, We Are Not One. Why did you choose that to be the title of your book? Uh, thank you for that question. It, it has a few different meanings. It took me a long time to come up with a title, but this is the perfect title. We Are Not One refers to the fact, A, that America and Israel are very different countries. And Israel is a small country in the Middle East, surrounded by Arab countries. The United States is a superpower, obviously. Uh, there are a lot of differences. But, you know, but Israel basically gets to make policy for the United States in, in the Middle East. And I think that's a questionable state of affairs. That's a strong statement to start the conversation with. Well, I, I quote a man you may know by the name of Olaf Ben. <laughs> yes, editor-in-chief of Haaretz. Who, in the very beginning of the book, who, who notes that the United States has supported Israel in every major factor with regard to Israel's desires. It has never allowed a fundamental conflict to arise between what Israel wants and what the United States is willing to support. There have been small ones, but never nothing on it fundamental. What do you describe as a small versus large confrontation? For example, Obama and Netanyahu fighting over the Iran deal in 2015. Does that not count as a major uh, confrontation? Well, that was about American policy. That wasn't about Israeli policy. Um, number two is uh, American Jews and Israeli Jews are very different people with very different life experiences and very different politics, um, almost contradictory politics today. Number three, American Jews are not one at all. American Jews are deeply conflicted With, with, with one another about many things, but most particularly about Israel. Um, and this is growing more and more so. There's a lot to talk about in each of these three areas that you've just marked for us. And I actually want to start with the U.S. and, and Israel. Um, obviously, very, very different countries. And you trace in your book the beginning of the debate in the United States about whether or not to support Israel. And... When I read it, it really showed to me how much the discussion has actually changed over the years and how much Israel is in a much stronger position today in the American political system and public opinion compared to the early years of the country. The beginning of the, of the story is quite fascinating to me as well. Um, one thing most people don't know, I think, is that American Jews were very anti-Zionist 
from the founding of the movement, the modern Zionist movement by Herzl and his companions in, in um, Basel for Zionist Congress. Very, they, they, they said explicitly, America is our Zion. And they were worried that they would be seen as uh, un, unpatriotic and not committed to America. There were two steps to transforming this. One was when Louis Brandeis, who was a hero to American Jews, both German and East European, uh, became head of the um, uh, Zionist movement. And he redefined Zionism to mean that other Jews should go to Palestine, but not American Jews, because American Jews had no reason to go. But Everything American was... Jews had a different role, which is to support right. the Jews who went right. to the, Palestine, and, the, the British Mandate of Palestine and then the State of Israel. Right. He, 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 well, there was, there was no one imagined really a state at the, in the 1920s, but, but he, he said to be a Zionist is to be a patriotic American. Zionism is American patriotism because it was looking out for one's neighbors, but remaining uh, committed and loyal to the United States. The second thing, obviously, was the Holocaust. American Jews were profoundly traumatized, and many still are, by their inability to do anything meaningful to help the European Jews. So the, they were thrilled to be able to support the Zionists and the lobbying campaign by American Jews for the Zionists, for, for the state of Israel, when Harry Truman was president, is, I, I think, the biggest lobbying campaign in the history of lobbying campaigns. There were villages and towns in America that sent more letters and postcards to Congress and to the president than they had people in them. And the amount of money raised was fantastic. And uh, I, think it, I think it made the difference politically for Truman's decision to recognize Israel 11 minutes after Ben-Gurion declared the state. A decision that he made against the advice of some of the most senior figures in his administration, specifically in the foreign policy and national security arenas. After Dwight Eisenhower, uh, George Marshall was the most respected American there was, and he was Secretary of State. And he told Truman he would not vote for him if Truman did this. Um, but he didn't say he would resign, which is a big difference. Who cares what he votes for? And then moving a bit ahead, but not yet to the huge transformation of 67, you see the Eisenhower years were basically, there was a much different policy that I think today no American president would be able to execute regarding Israel. When you think about what he did in 56 after Israel uh, took over the Sinai Peninsula and he threatened sanctions on Israel, something that I don't think any American president would seriously consider today. That's absolutely true. He threatened to refuse to allow American trade with Israel and to refuse to allow any private contributions. Israel, Israel did not withdraw from Sinai after it invaded Sinai with France and Britain. He, he demanded a withdrawal right away. He was furious in part because he was furious because the United States wanted to have an alliance with Arab countries, but also because Israel and France and Britain did it just after the Soviet Union had invaded Hungary. And he wanted the world's focus on the imperialist actions of the Soviet Union, not on the imperialist actions of Britain, France and Israel. And it was right before that year's election, which is also interesting. Um, and maybe it was part of Ben-Gurion's calculation. Maybe he thought Eisenhower wouldn't come out with those kinds of threats immediately before an election. But uh, that did not deter Eisenhower. And still, if we fast forward a decade later to 67, again, there is a scenario where Israel conquers large territory. 
uh, from its neighbors, uh, Egypt and Syria this time as well, and Jordan. But this time under a democratic president, Lyndon Johnson, instead of the demand for a withdrawal that Eisenhower made in 56, you get the land for peace formula. Yeah, there was a transformation between 56 and 67 in the American presidency. John Kennedy was the first president to sell Israel weaponry. Kennedy was very concerned about Dimona and uh, the Israeli nuclear program, and the Israelis consistently lied about it to him. And there might have been a conflict over that had he lived. When Ben-Gurion met Johnson, I think it was at the Waldorf, he said, you had a good friend in President Kennedy, but I will be an even better friend to you. And all of a sudden, Israel could have whatever it wanted in terms of weapons. And so you had the Six-Day War, and the six days, I mean, this is true, of course, in Israel, too. The, the fact that it was six days was very important. It seemed like God had in, started intervening in human history again. And American Jews went from overnight, literally, they went from despair and fear and thinking, oh, my God, we're going to be powerless again as Jews are murdered to... Euphor to euphoria. Yeah, euphoria. And, um, and, and, and here's, this is kind of the crux of my book. American Jewish organizations, which had not been very interested in Israel before this, they liked it. They, they liked planting trees and having kids go out with little boxes to raise money for, for uh, good causes in Israel. It was kind of like Disneyland. Uh, it became the Exodus movie version of Israel it was implanted in American Jews in this period. But uh, overnight, they, they, their budgets and their focus switched to entirely support for Israel and every major Jewish organization. And since 67, Israel has held on to the territories we had in, uh, in, in the late 70s, the peace agreement with Egypt. Um, and then later Sharon withdrew from Gaza, but the rest of the territories are still in Israeli control. And we look at the American policy ever since 67, it, it seems like... Really, we've had several uh, crisis points around the settlements. Um, I can think of the F Ford administration uh, reassessment of their relationship with Israel and of the crisis with uh, George H.W. Bush. But um, the facts on the ground have remained the same. Well, there's a break, I would say, in the Reagan administration. Uh, before the Reagan administration, Nixon, Ford, Carter were willing to take on Israel in the American public arena. They lost sometimes. They lost a lot. Israel would win in Congress often, but not always. But once, but in the 1980s, what happened is APAC lost the battle over the AWACS, which was a missile system that the United States was selling to Saudi Arabia, uh, and decided that it needed to become a completely different kind of organization. Instead of just quietly lobbying Congress, it needed to become a grassroots mass organization that could uh, pick its candidates, train its candidates, uh, help to control the debate in the media. And it became a, a lobbying powerhouse, not unlike the NRA in the United States. Second thing that happened was the Christian coalition became pro-Zionist uh, and got involved in politics. They were always pro-Zionist. When, even when the Jews were anti-Zionist, the evangelical Christians were pro-Zionist, but they became incredibly pro-Zionist. It became one of their most fundamental beliefs um, in large measure because they think that it'll help and uh, hasten the end of the world and Armageddon 
and Jews will all go to hell unless they decide to be saved. But you know what people here in Israel say about that? When, when Jesus comes back and all of that happens, we'll deal with it. For now, we'll yeah. take their political no. support and we'll deal with the going to hell part when it actually happens. There's, there's a quote I like a lot in the book from this neoconservative who's dead now, Irving Kristol, one of the most important neoconservatives. And it was about, um, you know, before 67, American Jews were mostly concerned with uh, prejudice against American Jews in, in like social, in country clubs, and law firms and so forth. And Irving Kristol said, uh, if they don't let us into the big country club in the sky, we'll worry about that later. They don't really, you know, <laughs> we don't really know if that's going to happen. For now, as long as they support Israel, that's what's important. Anyway, so you had the conservative Christians, you had the uh, APAC and uh, the President's Conference completely changing their profile and you had the birth of the neoconservative movement which whereas it never really had much support among American Jews who have remained strongly liberal it had a lot of power in the media and in the government so these three groups basically defined not only US policy they defined the terms of the debate remember this book is about the debate and anyone who went outside of the terms of the debate was in a lot of trouble what's what's outside the terms of the debate for example well that's what's funny about this it it, it changes all the time and yet if you if you're ahead of it you you get pilloried so president Kennedy was not allowed to say the word Palestinian and Jimmy Carter was not allowed to say the words Palestinian homeland and if we're looking to more recent history um, I think it's fair to say that in the last decade with the presidencies of Obama and then Trump we are beginning to see the new lines emerge about um, where the U.S. stands on Israel and more partisan differences on this question? Well, that's absolutely true. The, um, the Republican Party has become 100% pro-Likud. If Donald Trump weren't running, Bibi Netanyahu could get the Republican nomination for president. Yeah, he was, well, we saw him uh, last weekend at the Republican-Jewish coalition in Las Vegas. And I think, uh, yeah, except for uh, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, he was the favorite uh, speaker for the crowd, indeed. So most American Jews are Democrats, and they're the most liberal white group of people in America. It's uh, famously, it was said many years ago, they earn like Presbyterians or earn like Episcopalians and vote like Puerto Ricans. It's still true. And, and yet the American Jewish organizations take their the major ones take their marching orders from Israel so there's a split inside the American Jewish community and there's a split between American Jews and American Jewish organizations now in the Democratic Party it's 5050 whether or not people are more favorable to the Palestinians or to these Israelis 5050 now but among young people the Palestinians are much more popular than the Israelis And that's because Israel is a right-wing illiberal country. Israel is a red country and Jews American Jews are a blue country. And this split is only going to get worse as the two elections we've just had demonstrate. But you know there are certain people here in Israel and I think Netanyahu is among them who think that it's not such a problem for Israel to lose the support of American Jewry because with the support of, of the evangelicals, basically Israel is guaranteed 100% ironclad support from the Republican side. And uh, it's true that the Jewish uh, population in America does have some um, representation and, you know, it's a, it's a component of the Democratic coalition. Uh, but Netanyahu thinks he can maneuver during years when the Democrats are in power and then the evangelicals provide everything he needs from the Republican side. So he doesn't care anymore about the American Jewish community. Well, you know, he's right. 
And in addition to which, let's be honest, Zionist ideology, even on the left, has contempt for American Jews. They, the, the right and the left in Israel agree that uh, the diaspora is ridiculous and that it's uh, it, either anti-Semitism or assimilation will eventually eliminate it. This is not true of all. Or, or, or maybe massive aliyah. <laughs> which is I think I think for the left in Israel it's kind of like the last hope at this point um, that there right. would be a demographic change via the uh, mass immigration of liberal American Jews to Israel at some point when we had the massacre in Pittsburgh and Trump insisted on going there and the Pittsburgh uh, rabbi and the, com- the community said don't come we don't want you you're part of the problem well Ron Dermer, and Bennett both went and supported Trump and uh, against the wishes of American Jews. And, and this was a key moment in, uh, in the choice of Israel saying, we support this right-wing, obviously now anti-Semite, over the wishes of American Jews because that's, that's where we see the power. That's where we see our future. So I have two questions to ask you, and I think with, yeah. with those two, we'll wrap it up. Um, uh, and the uh, people who want to get more on the subject can obviously read a lot about it on ours.com and also read um, We Are Not One, um, your new book. But I guess my first question is, do you anticipate Joe Biden doing anything that will change the dynamic now that in Israel you have the most, uh, it hasn't been sworn in yet, but it's coming um, any day, uh, the most right-wing, most religious, most extremist government in our history? And the second question, do you think Joe Biden is the last pro-Israeli democratic president in America? Because Joe Biden, I really think, has a sense of strong support and commitment to Israel in his gut. And he uh, empathizes with Israel and really uh, believes in the Zionist narrative. And so do you see any changes coming from his administration with this upcoming Netanyahu government? And then what's the future of the Democratic Party after Biden? So three questions. There's a quote in the book that I love, and I, I couldn't figure out who said it. I think it was a Harar columnist, actually. But I couldn't find it after I, I took it down, which was, Biden was afraid of the bear in the basement, meaning Bibi. And so anytime he had a conflict with the Bennett government, which was just as harsh on the Palestinians as Netanyahu ever was, in some ways harsher, they kept quiet about it. They might have said something privately. Tony Blinken might have, you know, sent a memo, but they didn't want to do anything to weaken the anti-Netanyahu government because they were afraid of the bear in the basement. So now the bear is back. There's no question they wish Bibi were not there and that this government will be the worst of Bibi. Uh, Bibi, you know, multiply, Bibi square. And, uh, and so there will be a lot more open conflict because the, even the mainstream of the Democratic Party is horrified by what we anticipate from the next Israeli government. You see that with the uh, investigation of um, the Palestinian American journalist, which the United States is demanding something that's, there's no real precedent for that. And you see it in the statement recently by Rick Jacobs, the head of the reform Jews in the United States, condemning um, Ben Gavir, et cetera. So the, the, the invitation of the far right in Israel, the pro-terrorist right, I think it's fair to call them, opens up a new era between Israel and Biden-type Democrats, the Democrats who are used to supporting Israel, 
who are very comfortable with APEC, who, as you say, embrace the Zionist narrative. Now, what distinguished Biden from his two main competitors in the primaries, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who were much more progressive than he was, was he said there will never be any conditions on American aid to Israel. The Democratic Party, most of it now does support conditions on American aid to Israel. Israel's the only country in the world that gets American military aid and doesn't have to account for how it's being used. That could change under a future Democratic administration. I mean, the last thing I'll say is that in this debate, Israel has an ace in the hole, which is that Israel says we have no one to make peace with. And that's true. I wouldn't, if I were prime minister of Israel, I would not make peace with either Hamas or the Palestinian Authority because the Palestinian Authority doesn't speak for anyone. It's corrupt and it has very little public support and Hamas is impossible. So Israel uh, has an opportunity now to um, strengthen itself and make itself more attractive to America and the rest of the democratic world. Instead, it's doing the opposite. So someday, I mean, the worst thing that could happen to Israel would be the Palestinians would get their act together and have a a politically realistic alternative. But they don't have one now. Uh, Israel's moving in the opposite direction. Palestinians are moving in the opposite direction. So I I just see... uh, the current situation getting worse and worse over time. I have nothing hopeful to say, I'm afraid. On that note of great optimism, uh, Eric, and, and I have to say I agree with a lot of what you said, uh, unfortunately, and maybe the one kind of silver lining I will point to is that perhaps things cannot get too much worse, and uh, at some point they they might even revert. But um, with that, I, I'll thank you again for joining the podcast today and congratulate you on uh, publishing uh, We Are Not One, fascinating history of uh, the U.S.-Israel relationship and the debate over Israel and the U.S. Can I just say, this might sound a little sucky-uppy, but I want to thank Aretz, in part because it's the, obviously, no contest, the best source of information in the English language about uh, Israel and the conflict itself. But also, it, it's it's fantastic as a historical source. There's so much that... Uh, I'm a historian. I have a PhD in history. But there's so much in this book that is based on newspaper articles about history that have appeared in hearts. There's no other publication that does this. Wonderful. So again, Eric Alterman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much, listeners, for being with us. And to our production and editing team, Naharam Alkin and Shani Aviram. We'll be back again next week. And until then, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Shalom from Tel Aviv.